following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Whether we've studied a spiritual teaching for some number of years, or if it's something new, regardless of the tradition, we always go back towards the very root, which is the direct experience of the truths contained within religion. This is why we say that Gnosis is a heart doctrine. It is a doctrine of the heart. It is not exclusively intellectual. For while we study and accumulate knowledge, a robust spiritual culture of different scriptures and different writings, really what we look for is the practice. What we seek is the experience. And this is why we say that Gnosis is a Dharma of the heart. When we say that it relates with the heart, it has to do with certainty. The fact that we know from experience, for it's one thing to read about spirituality, about the different realms of the universe called the Sephiroth and Kabbalah, different modalities of consciousness, out-of-body experiences, experiences in which one may find oneself conversing with the gods. It's one thing to read about it. It's a completely different thing to experience it. And this is why we say Gnosis relates with the heart. It is what we live palpably within ourselves. So whether we've been studying for a long time or if we are new to this teaching, this is always what we come back to, the fundamentals, to question what it is we truly know from experience, that which we have lived within our flesh and our bones, within the very atoms of our consciousness. 
And it is this type of experience which really shows us that all religions are unanimous, that there really is no distinction or conflict between them. This knowledge is about activating the very latent potential to become something superior, to become a being that is a living incarnation of God. And we do this through practical efforts, practical work. This knowledge has been given many names. And in this lecture, in speaking about the heart doctrine, or the secret path of the heart, we're going to delve into the many different schools, the foundations, and structure of religion. How the heart develops in accordance with initiation and stages of the path. And really that it is a practical science. It is very practical. Regardless of the profundity, the vastness, and the complexity of this type of teaching, really it is actually quite simple. It relates with how we use consciousness. As we were talking in one of our previous lectures, we were talking about Pinocchio which means pine seed. In Buddhist terms, we refer to this as Buddhadatu, which means the seed of the Buddha. It is the potential to become a being that is fully awakened. The root word Bud means cognizance, and the Buddha is one who has fully awakened that. This is really our goal. This is what we want to become. And this doesn't come about by theories. It comes about by work through spiritual discipline, through practice. And this is why you see, particularly in this tradition, we have so many tools to activate that from different prayers, conjurations and invocations, practices of magic in which we invoke the superior forces of the tree of life known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Christian terms. The first logos, second logos, and third logos in Gnostic Greek terms and many names. These tools and exercises are meant to develop the pine seed so that this pine seed may become a Christmas tree completely illuminated and developed. This all is based upon our actions. It's based upon what we work upon in our heart, how we develop the heart. Because gnosis, if we examine the term, in Greek it's a silent G, relates to the Sanskrit word jnana, meaning knowledge, and pranya, which is the wisdom of the heart, such as with the Heart Sutra or Pranya Paramita Sutra. So we find that cognate, nya, gnosis, jnana, pranya. We find this even in Hebrew names such as Eliana, which is commonly translated as God has answered me. 
but can literally mean my goddess of knowledge. And if you know Kabbalah, that's one of the sacred names of God. My goddess of knowledge, Yod Chava. Or Eloah Vadat, Yod He He, in Tiferet, the world of the heart, which is equivalent to the aforementioned name. Eliana relates with that. Pranya, Nyana, Gnosis, knowledge within the human being. Since when we know the divine through conscious awareness, Tiferet, it has to do with the certainty of the truth, experience in one's heart. What we emphasize always is practice, not theories. If we want God to answer us, indicated through the name Eliana, we have to develop self-knowledge. We study the theory in the beginning, so that when we have the practical experience, we can orient ourselves appropriately. This is why we have so many different books. We have over 70 books from astrology to Tarot to Kabbalah, alchemy, tantra, Buddhism. Christianity, Islam, many writings. But all that is useless if we do not know how to work the consciousness, if we do not know how to develop the seed so that it may sprout into a Buddha, an awakened being. The person who initiates this type of effort, who works in a practical way, in Greek is known as mystikos, which means initiate. It comes from the Greek root, main, which means to close the eyes. This is also the root word of mystery, and in a very famous scripture known as the voice of the silence, transcribed by Helena Petrovna Bolvatsky, it says this, Before the soul can see, the harmony within must be attained and fleshly eyes be rendered blind to all illusion. So it means to close the eyes to the misconceptions or the theories, the beliefs of many traditions and religions and to really seek to experience what is internal because this knowledge is completely internal. We have to really become blind to a lot of the concepts and misconceptions made about religion and spiritual practice. Because generally, humanity is focused on the external and ignores the treasures that we carry within our interior, that pine seed that can really blossom into something rare and beautiful. It's necessary to learn how to close the eyes in a figurative sense. It doesn't mean we become naive or stupid. It just means that we know how to live in this world with wisdom, to take advantage of it for our spiritual work, to use that so that we can really be a benefit, not only to ourselves, but to others in a genuine way. The mistake of many traditions 
or the misconceptions about traditions is that it is solely related with the external. This is what we call the eye doctrine in the scripture that I've quoted from. The doctrine of the physical eye, meaning we always look towards the physical world for answers and explanations of phenomena. Or better said, noumena, which is completely mystical and is not based on physical experience. It's something internal, more profound. And unfortunately, many schools of philosophy, many religions, they interpret the scriptures in a very literal way, in accordance with theories, in accordance with the eye, with what is most easily seen. But it is very rare for a person to develop that internal sight in order to see within the scripture itself from living experience. And the Master Jesus explained this very beautifully in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, mine, to close the eyes, to see within. But to them it has not been given. Meaning that they have not awakened the consciousness to experience these things, which is our divine nature within. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, relating with the heart doctrine. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their spiritual eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Since you have accomplished this through mine, closing your eyes to the illusions of the world. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. From the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. So he makes a very strong distinction between the exoteric and the esoteric that which is readily perceived on the outside by external perception, meaning what we term in Gnosticism as the sensual mind. And then there's one inward perception through mystical exaltation of the consciousness. In Gnostic psychology, we refer to three types of mind. The sensual mind, the intermediate mind, the inner mind. The sensual mind is a type of psychology which is solely fascinated with physical phenomena. Meaning it is a type of reasoning based on what we can readily see. 
a type of common sense, so to speak. It is exclusively founded upon information gathered from the five senses. Since it is limited to physical perception or phenomena, such a mind cannot know anything of spiritual realities, denominated by Immanuel Kant as noumena. But the intermediate mind is much different. It has to do with beliefs and theories. It has to do with concepts. Things that, while we have not experienced them, we still think they are true. We do not know if they're true. But we may have a faith in religion and say, well, we should believe in Jesus and I feel like I'm saved because I have accepted Christ as my Savior and I'm done. And that's the intermediate mind. It relates with a type of mysticism which is not based in direct experience, in the consciousness. It is a belief in the heart or a concept in the mind that is not backed by experiential evidence within the awakening of the psyche. But then we have the inner mind. The inner mind, which is the faculty of the consciousness. It is what we can directly perceive in complete mystical experience, the truths contained in religion, sometimes known as, perhaps, awakening in dreams, such as described in the book of Daniel, which relates with dreams, or the light of Jacob, in which he perceived the angels ascending and descending from the superior to the inferior worlds. It's the inner mind we seek to awaken and to develop. We say that when the Buddhata, the seed of the Buddha, is fully developed, then the inner mind is 100% awakened. This is what we call faith. Belief is to think something is true, but we don't practically know. Real faith a term that is so abused in this day, really means that we know. When Jesus said, with faith the size of a mustard seed, like a pine seed, you can move mountains. He's not talking about belief. He's talking about experience. Because when you know something is true, your conviction is very determined and solid. It's unshakable. And even if many people think you're crazy for studying a type of teaching like this, a type of mysticism of wanting to experience the divine in a personal way, you know it's true. And really that won't bother you because when you know the truth, the truth shall set you free. It really has nothing to do with concepts, theories, beliefs. But we have to open the heart as Jesus says, to close the eyes to the physical world, close the eyes to the sensual mind, in order to perceive with the vision of the heart. Many masters are unanimous on this point. I'll quote for you probably the greatest Sufi master that's lived. His name is Ibn Arabi, and this is from his book called Divine Governance of the Human Kingdom. May God open the eyes of your heart, shedding his divine light. 
the angelic realm, which contains the potential of future creation, incorporeal existences, the meaning of all and everything to come, and divine power, is the element from which the visible world is created, and, therefore, the material world is under the influence and domination of the angelic realm. The movement, the sound, the voice, the ability to speak, to eat and to drink, is not from the existences themselves in the visible material world. They all pass through the invisible world of the angelic realm. We think that we see with our eyes. The information, the influences of perception, are due to our senses, while the real influence, the meaning of things, the power behind what sees and what is seen, can be reached neither by the senses, nor by deduction and analysis, comparison, contrasts, and associations made through intellectual theories. The invisible world can only be penetrated by the eye and the mind of the heart. Indeed, the reality of this visible also can only be seen by the mind and eye of the heart. He's really talking about a superior type of perception in which the divine nature that we have can see with clarity the very essence and nature of this phenomenal world. And it is through mystical experience that we see, particularly in meditation or out of the body, that they can see that this physical world is really quite crude. It is not accurate. It doesn't convey the actual essence of what occurs on a psychological level, on an energetic level. This is why in Hinduism, this world is maya, is illusion. In order to delve past the illusions of the world, really, it's internal. We have to develop the heart through the experience and perception of the divine. Ibn Arabi continues, What we think we see is but veils which hide the reality of things, things whose truth, whose meaning may not be revealed until these veils are lifted. If you're familiar with Freemasonry or Egyptian mysticism, we know about the veil of Isis. It's that covering or the illusions of the senses which prevent us from perceiving divine mother nature or the divinity that we carry within. Ibn Arabi continues, It is only when the dark veils of imagination and preconception are raised that the divine light will penetrate the heart enabling the inner eye to see that neither the sunlight or the light of a candle will become a metaphor for the divine light. Notice this is direct experience. And the very obstacle that prevents us from accessing those superior states, not just when we physically go to sleep and enter into those dream states, but on a moment-to-moment basis, is a lack of conscious attention. It is only by learning to direct our attention from second to second, from instant to instant, that we can really lift the veil of Isis to penetrate with our comprehension into the very nature of the divine, which subsists on a moment-to-moment basis. As Samael and Veor wrote, the truth is the unknowable from moment to moment. When we think we know, 
that's usually a sure indicator that we probably are very asleep. Because the state of awakened perception or self-remembering or self-observation, to be in the now, everything is new. And we recognize, I don't know anything. Like a child who is fascinated with the experience of life and everything is fresh and new. This is really the psychological attitude that we need in every second. And we always have to go back and cultivate that. It is the foundation. It is the foundation of mystical experience. It is the means by which, through the practice of meditation, we cultivate, facilitate, and activate those experiences. Really, it comes to my mind the story of a Tibetan Buddhist master who was asked by a student of his, So when do you meditate? And he replied, But I am always meditating. In every second. It's by using that clarity of perception, which we call consciousness, buddhata, tathagarta garba, the psyche, the soul. This is the very key that opens the door to religion. To true reunion with the divine. It is a moment-to-moment awareness, a moment-to-moment effort. And it is this key that is so lacking in many traditions today, which have really died and lost the heart doctrine contained within them. Or we could say that their esoteric heart stopped beating. And this is why we see many scriptures interpreted so literally. And the great masters, the rabbis of the Zohar, warned about this many centuries ago, even in their own time. The Zohar is probably the most advanced scripture given by the Kabbalists of Israel. The Sefer HaZohar means the Book of Splendors. Splendor is a reference to the Sefer HaTivaret, on the Tree of Life. For as we say in the Invocation of Solomon, Mercy, Chesed, and Justice, Geburah, be ye the equilibrium and splendor, Tiberet, of my life. It is from Judaism where we derive a certain structure or dynamic in religion, which we actually find in all traditions. And we're going to talk about this in relation with the heart doctrine. The Kabbalists say that there is a body, a soul, and a spirit to every doctrine. In Judaism, the Torah, the books of Moses, along with the complete writings in the Tanakh, is known as the body of the doctrine. The Talmud by the Kabbalists is known as the soul of the doctrine. And then you have the spirit of the doctrine, which is the Zohar. You can see that these are varying levels of instruction. Moses wrote the Torah the body of law and instruction. Some people confuse the Talmud with the Torah. The Talmud is more of the philosophical discourse regarding Jewish mysticism and way of life. It's really more of the soul of the doctrine, whereas the body of the doctrine is just the narrative. And you'll see from this quotation how this illustrates this fact. 
This is about the real Torah from the Sefer HaZohar. Rabbi Simeon says, Woe to the man who says that the Torah came to relate stories simply and plainly, and simpleton tales about Esau and Laban and the like. If it was so, even at the present day we could produce a Torah from simplistic matters, and perhaps even nicer ones than those. If the Torah came to exemplify worldly matters, even the rulers of the world have among them things that are superior. If so, let us follow them and produce from them a Torah in the same manner. It must be that all items in the Torah are of a superior nature and are uppermost secrets. Come and behold, the world above and the world below are measured with one scale. The children of Israel below correspond to the lofty angels above. Which, going back to Ibn Arabi's quote, he's talking about the angelic realm, the physical realm, and their connection. It is written about the lofty angels. Who makes the winds his messengers? From Psalms chapter 104, verse 4. When they descend downwards, they are donned with the vestments of this world. If they had not acquired the dress for this world, they will not be able to exist in this world, and the world will not be able to stand them. And if this is so for the angels, how much more so it is for the Torah that created these messengers and all the worlds that exist due to her. Once it was brought down to this world, if it had not donned all these covering garments of this world, which are the stories and simplistic tales, the world will not have been able to tolerate it. It's because this type of teaching is too direct. And why all the great scriptures are really symbolic. So we see that from the angelic realm, the superior regions, the messengers and prophets, from which we get from the word angeloi or angels, come down in order to express this type of teaching, which is very abstract. So to explain it in completely abstract terms, people would not understand it. Since those indoctrinated by the sensual mind and the five senses are less capable of grasping it. The fact that it's written in stories and parables is in order to convey a message. But if we interpret things literally, in accordance with the eye doctrine and not the heart, we fall into many absurdities, many mistakes. So we say that the Torah, which interestingly enough means instruction, law, etc., is the same meaning as Dharma. The Torah and the Dharma are really the law, the instruction, the foundation of spiritual practice. The problem is that, due to the hypnosis of the senses, people are not capable of experiencing the truths that are contained in the scriptures in a symbolic form. Because if we read just the literal meaning, it's really quite useless. It might feed a person's pride to read about the history of Israel. It is very literal to them. They think that there is no symbolism. And meanwhile, the whole scripture is symbolic. It is a vestment, a dress. The Zohar continues. Therefore, this story of the Torah is the mantle of the Torah. He who thinks that this mantle is the actual essence of the Torah and that nothing else is in there, let his spirit deflate, and let him have no part in the world to come. Therefore David said, Open my spiritual eyes, 
through my own meditation, that I may behold wondrous things out of your Torah, your law and instruction. From Psalms chapter 119, verse 18. That is, look what lies under the garment of the Torah. Come and behold, there is a dress that is visible to everyone. The simple people, when they see a person dressed beautifully, who appears to them distinguished by his clothing, do not observe any further. They make their judgments about him according to his distinguished apparel, and they consider the dress as the body of man, and the body of the person like his soul. It's like what Polonius says in Hamlet, for the apparel oft proclaims the man. This is now taken in a more spiritual sense. We can even draw an interesting parallel to Friedrich Nietzsche as thus spoke Zarathustra, wherein his fictional prophet discusses the torpidity of the common man in relation with the things of the divine, as well as those famous wise men who say they follow the heart doctrine, but are in turn hypocrites and literal interpreters of the Torah, individuals we may otherwise denominate tarantulas, to use the author's terminology. But even in your virtues, you remain for me part of the people, the dumb-eyed people, the people who do not know what spirit is. From book two, the chapter on the famous wise men. We continue now with the Zohar. Similar to this is the Torah. It has a body, which is composed of the commandments of the Torah that are called the body of the Torah. This body is clothed with garments, which are the stories of this world. The ignorant of the world only look at that dress, which is the story in the Torah, and are not aware of anything more. They do not look at what lies beneath that dress. Those who know more do not look at the dress, but rather at the body beneath that dress. The wise, the sages, the servants of the loftiest king, which is Christ, that divine intelligence known by many different names in religion. Those that stood on Mount Sinai look only at the soul of the Torah, which is the essence of everything, the real Torah. In the destiny to come, they are destined to look at the soul, the soul of the Torah. We find this structure and dynamic in all religions. And I'm going to draw this parallel amongst all religions, or some of the major ones that we know that express this type of dynamic, a body, a soul, and a spirit of a doctrine. In the Buddhist sense, we have the following schools. Shravakayana, Mahayana, and Tantrayana, Vajrayana. Yana means vehicle and indicates a vehicle of instruction, a vehicle of giving forth the Torah, the law, the Dharma, whatever name or label you want to give it. Shravaka means someone who listens. So in the beginning of any spiritual instruction, we have to listen first. The beginner always listens to receive that type of teaching. And therefore, it's the vehicle by which we take in that instruction for the first time. Mahayana means greater vehicle. And it relates more to how we work practically to help other people. You may be familiar with the term bodhicitta, which we're going to talk about in relation with the soul of the doctrine. And then you have the spirit, which is tantrayana, the very essence, root, or core of a doctrine, which is very advanced. Vajra means lightning or diamond, 
So this indicates that most pure teaching we know of, we find this even in Sufism. Sharia, Tariqa, and Hakika Marifa. We have the body of the law, Sharia. We have the soul, Tariqa, which means path. It's really the esoteric path. And then we have the final two, which are really Hakika and Marifa. Hakika means truth, and Marifa means gnosis, knowledge. Sharia is the written law or code of Islam, Al-Quran and Al-Hadith. This is the code of conduct any spiritual aspirant must fulfill. Such ethical discipline is the foundation of all religious practice and spiritual achievement. Tariqa is the soul of the teachings, the practical techniques for achieving spiritual change. These practices have never been given openly by the Muslim initiates, but were transmitted by mouth to ear. However, we now have such techniques available in the writings of Samael on Veor. Tariqa also represents the philosophical teachings that explain Al-Qur'an and Al-Harit, which we find in the Sufi writings of Rumi, Ibn Arabi, Al-Kushari, and others. Hakika is the truth. The realization of divine spiritual truths within the many explications of the great Sufi masters. One example is the poetry of Mansur al-Halaj, the Muslim Christ, who was tortured and killed for pronouncing, Ana al-Haq, I am the truth. Truly, this master completely embodied the heart doctrine, since he had no psychological impurities in his mind. He had completely awakened his inner mind and embodied the truth. With his explanation about the body, soul, and spirit of any doctrine, we can now understand the following words from the Prophet Muhammad. The outer law, Sharia, is my word. The spiritual path, Tariqah, my actions. And the inner reality, Hakikah, my inner states. In relation with the heart doctrine, the very heart of a teaching is Tantrayana. It is the secret teachings in relation with alchemy, Tantra, the very highest yoga practices, which were not given to any student unless they prove themselves worthy. Right now, we live in a very different age of accessibility and information. And the fact that people need this teaching, that we need the tools and techniques, such knowledge is given openly. It's given more readily so people can practice. But in the past, this was conserved. If you're familiar with astrology, the age of Pisces, during the times of Jesus, things were very conservative in relation with the dissemination of the esoteric knowledge. The Kabbalists of Israel were very selective, and they did not want to give the teachings openly. But you see that Jesus went forth and started publicly teaching these sorts of things, and they reacted very violently because they were very conservative. Tantra and alchemy was not given so openly. It was given to those who proved their worth, first of all, by fulfilling the very foundations of spiritual practice, by demonstrating that they could enter into the heart doctrine through practical experience. Truly the Shravakayana, the Dharma, the Torah, in the very foundations of practice, 
is given very beautifully and simplistically in the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha. Because a Shravakayana practitioner, someone who is working the very foundations of ethics and practice, so that they can experience these types of things, has to understand the nature of karma. Karma is simply a law of cause and effect. But it is not so simple. Because we have many internal processes that occur even without us knowing about it. Physical, emotional, and psychological. Karma is a topic of its own. But we'll introduce this in relation with the body of the doctrine. So the first noble truth states that in life there is suffering. The person has to acknowledge that there is suffering in this life in order to want to change. If we're attached to our way of life, we will not seek to improve it. It's the recognition that suffering exists where we inquire into their causes, the second noble truth. And when we see that there are specific causes to suffering, that certain actions are being produced which inevitably bring negative results to us, we realize that there is an antidote called cessation. Cessation refers to the end of the causes of suffering, the third noble truth. By the very fact that we discover cessation, we discover that there is a path, the fourth noble truth, towards the cessation of suffering. Really, we are delivering this knowledge of the heart doctrine in the Kabbalistic and Buddhist way, particularly in relation with the mantra Om Masi Padme Hum that we performed prior to this discussion. Because it tends to be more readily familiar than, say, the Sufi tradition. However, we felt it important to explain this aspect of the heart doctrine, since many are not familiar with it. We also emphasize Buddhism by the fact that the Buddha synthesized the heart doctrine very beautifully. However, we find the Four Noble Truths in all religions. There is suffering. Obviously, suffering has causes which we produce. There exists the cessation of the causes of suffering. And there is a path, just as Jesus taught. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. From the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 14. As I was saying, that the foundation of the body of a doctrine is understanding the nature of cause and effect, the nature of karma, how karma actually functions, how we actually produce results. That's an enigma in itself. Since oftentimes we will try to present something and perform a certain action only to not produce the result that we want, such as in interrelations. We may think we said something funny or something good and it produces a bad result. But we all do this. We all have certain ways of being ignorant, of causing suffering, and it is this type of ignorance which prevents us from accessing the more deeper levels of spiritual practice, the heart doctrine, of going further into the experience of the divine. We find certain foundations or descriptions within each stage. Travakayana is in relation with ethics and renunciation. It means that the very foundation to know what is right and know what is wrong. Do what is right and don't do what is wrong. We find this in the Ten Commandments of Judaism. We find this in the Ten Virtuous and Non-Virtuous Actions of Tibetan Buddhism. 
which we synthesize into body, speech, and mind. It's a very interesting parallel in relation with the levels of instruction of these teachings. The body, soul, and spirit of a doctrine. We categorize it in this way because there are sins of the body, sins of speech, relating with the heart, with emotions, and sins of mind. So these are the three brains of Gnostic psychology. Intellect, emotions, and movement or the motor brain. Body. Killing. Physically, but also with negative emotions, anger, criticism. Stealing. Material goods, but also spiritual teachings. Sexual misconduct. Adultery and fornication. The abuse of sexual energy. Sins of speech. Lying to distort the truth in any fashion. Divisive speech, such as causing schisms in relationships. Hurtful speech, trying to harm another person or oneself with violent words. Senseless speech, speaking gibberish. Sins of mind, covetousness, wanting to possess what another person has. Malice, feeling hatred towards any living being. And holding wrong views, which is really the root of all of our problems. We have a presentation of certain literal vows that we need physically. However, the real work is to fulfill them psychologically. That's really where the heart doctrine starts to enter in relation with the Shravakayana path. The very foundation. Because it's one thing not to physically kill a person. Steal from them. It's one thing not to hurt someone physically through violence. But if we observe ourselves psychologically... We could be doing all these things and worse in our mind since we feel that no one can perceive what exactly is going on. We feel, well, I'm isolated. I can think all the negative things I want. I can feel all the negative things I want. Meanwhile, that brings consequences because thoughts and feelings relate with matter and energy. It's not physical. It relates with the subtle dimensions such as with the astral plane, Hod and Kabbalah. Netzach, the mind, on the tree of life. Even if we may not express anger with words, we can kill with a bad glance, a bad look. Energy travels great distances, even if we are not perceptive of this fact. This is why we can sense if a person is upset, even if they make no outward indications of such. This is known as the science of telepathy or transience. The transference of psychological and mental energies within interpersonal relations. Without unjust reason, then, some island Vior stated within the major mysteries. It is as bad to talk when one must be silent as to be silent when one must talk. There exist criminal silences as well as indignant words. Stealing does not only include material things but taking credit for another person's ideas, concepts, or spiritual teachings. The latter type of theft is the worst and most common. Many fanatics of spirituality steal the teachings of the great prophets and adulterate them, claiming them for their own. We find this all throughout spiritual movements, whether theosophy, Rosicrucianism, Hermetic philosophy, Eastern yoga, and even Gnosis. Those who steal the teachings of others 
and claim them for their own, without paying due respect to the guru, are those who indefinitely follow the I doctrine. For as Helena Petrovna Blavatsky transcribed in the aforementioned scripture, the voice of the silence, the doctrine of the eyes for the crowd, the doctrine of the heart for the elect, the first repeat in pride, Behold, I know, the last they who in humbleness have garnered, lo, confess, thus have I heard. Sexual misconduct is any negative action that abuses the sexual energy, principally through fornication, the loss of seminal energy through the orgasm, and adultery, which is not only physical, but psychological. There is adultery in the mind whenever someone feels lust in his mind and heart towards another person. This was indicated by Jesus in the Gospels, but also the Lord Buddha 2,500 years ago. Lying, divisive speech, hurtful speech, and senseless speech are abuses of the verb, the word, which is Christ. Whenever a person utilizes the verb in these matters, the mind and soul suffer the consequences, which is again the adulteration of forces within the psyche. God is the truth, and to lie is to sin against the Father. We have to remember that Christ is not a person, but a cosmic energy. Therefore, to sin is not some moral burden upon our shoulders, but a misappropriation of energies. Hurtful speech, divisive speech, divisive words, or senseless speech, as with many who claim to speak in tongues, abuse the verb and disturb their minds tremendously making them greater candidates for suffering, simply because they take the harmonious energies of Christ and use them in negative ways. Covetousness does not only involve desire towards material objects, but even psychic powers. Many students enter esotericism wanting spiritual powers to accomplish mind control, which is 100% negative. Christ respects free will, And to dominate another person in this way is very bad. To covet powers is also useless and eventually converts one into a magician of darkness since the only true power belongs to the Lord. The great initiates always renounce power, fame, and glory and surrender everything to God. This is hidden within the Arabic word Islam which means submission to the will of God. Oftentimes, such sentiments are fueled by malice, wanting to gain power in order to harm. It is not my purpose in this lecture to go so much into the consequences, but to help us reflect on how we commit these types of errors within ourselves on a daily basis. This is in order to awaken the comprehension of the heart, to enter into the heart doctrine. Wrong views entail ignorance of karma a lack of perception of reality, which makes us act in wrong ways. This is the root of our suffering, our lack of comprehension of the causes of suffering within our psyche. So our thoughts produce consequences. In the very exoteric level, we must stop. We should not do those things physically because it's going to create bad energy. 
And if we try to meditate with a mind that's so disturbed, we will not be able to comprehend anything. It will be too chaotic. What we want is to go into how it applies to our mind. How it applies to our hearts. Because that is really where the work is. There's also many types of behaviors that are generally so condoned in this society that we accept them. Such as idle chatter. Just talking. Something we think is really innocent. The great master Swami Shivananda said that idle chatter is the diarrhea of the tongue. Truly it is. Because people are something like volcanoes. Just belching out words without comprehending where it's coming from or the effect they have. This type of behavior disturbs the mind. If we try to sit and meditate after a very chaotic day, where we don't have enough restraint in our mind and actions, meditation becomes very difficult. Self-observation becomes very difficult. Trying to see the roots of our problems becomes very difficult. This is why renunciation alongside ethics is the foundation. We have to renounce these types of habits on a moment-to-moment basis. Not just saying, well, I'm not going to do that again. And we get into the same situation and repeat the same thing. The real effort is finding yourself running towards the cliff and finding yourself at the ledge, refraining and saying, I'm not going to do that. And then stopping before the fall. It could be a moment of restraint. The Buddha said this is a wonderful moment. That really shows we are working to change and are changing if we can stop ourselves from acting in habitually negative ways. If we find ourselves beginning to act a certain way that is contrary to the teachings or thinking negative thoughts by stopping ourselves through comprehension, renouncing them and letting ourselves relax, not identifying, that is a strong indication that we are developing our ethics. Ethics is really the foundation of concentration. It is impossible to concentrate in meditation if our mind is disturbed, if we do not have enough restraint. This is what the Buddha said in the Dhammapada, the very first lines. Mind precedes phenomena. We become what we think. So if our thoughts are garbage, if our thoughts are very negative, then that is what our life is going to be externally. It's how we are going to react and relate to others or how we're going to affect other people. Shivananda gave some very beautiful quotes in relation with this. Students fail in meditation because they lack ethics. And concentration without purity is useless. Pretty strong coming from a man who is generally considered to be very laid back and happy. But he had a very strong Martian side to him. Very disciplined nature. And we really have to be like that. We need to be focused. To be disciplined, but not militant. To be strong and firm, but flexible. Because it's one thing to adopt this type of conduct. I can't do harmful things. I can't think harmful thoughts. But to do it in a repressive way is wrong. It will get us nowhere. And I've seen that happen with many people who have been so affected trying to adopt this spiritual practice when doing so in a very cloistered way, helping them become very negative and morbid people. They perceive how much negativity they have within and they don't know how to deal with it. The thing is just to relax. 
if we catch ourselves doing negative things, thinking negative thoughts, then just relax. Be firm. Observe. Be concentrated, but don't be paranoid. Because the truth is we carry a lot of degeneration, a lot of negative habits, negative qualities. But it's by renouncing those habits in a calm way that we grow spiritually. You know that in an argument, you can be forceful without being offensive. You know, I agree with you, but this is my space. You can assert yourself without being overbearing. The same with spiritual discipline, except the one we are up against is our own mind. This is the type of gentle and affirming attitude that we need in relation with ethics. How to control the mind. Without storming and thundering like Zeus, this is not how I want things to be. But really, true strength and force is relaxed, firm, but gentle. This is just the foundation of the heart doctrine. The heart doctrine is founded upon these principles of ethics and spirituality. But we find through investigation and practice that this is just the groundwork for the path itself, the heart doctrine itself. As Blavatsky stated in The Voice of the Silence, the Dharma of the eye is the embodiment of the external and the non-existing. The Dharma of the heart is the embodiment of Bodhi, the permanent and everlasting. Bodhi means wisdom. As I mentioned to you before, the term Bodhicitta, which is essential to Mahayana Buddhism and is essential in Gnosis, since these traditions are unanimous. Bodhicitta literally means wisdom mind, wisdom heart, or wisdom consciousness. And we know from Kabbalah that wisdom in Hebrew is chokmah, which is Christ. So really we can say that this is Christ mind. As I said, Christ is not anthropomorphic. Christ is an intelligence, is a force, which we find in all of nature, and can become personalized in any individuals that have developed themselves to incarnate that. And Jesus is probably the most beautiful example of this fact, because he's a very elevated master. For example, we look at light bulbs, which are just the vehicles for the expression of light, and the light itself is that energy, Christ. Any terrestrial person is just the vehicle through which the light of the Lord can express himself. This brings us to another important term. If you're familiar with the Mahayana term in Buddhism, Bodhisattva. As I said, Bodhi is light or wisdom. Sattva means incarnation. So an incarnation of wisdom is somebody that has developed him or herself to the point where they actually have that intelligence within themselves. But they are working in a very superior way symbolized by the birth of Jesus in the stable and how he grows up into a complete and full human being, fulfilling the life, passion, crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. We use the term bodhisattva in relation with individuals who have achieved what we call mastery. This is a very high level of development. But it is, we can say, the beginning of a much greater spiritual evolution, or better said, revolution. 
Upon achieving mastery, these initiates may incarnate that intelligence if, on the sole condition, they work to help others. So it's one thing to reach that type of height in spiritual development. It's another thing to incarnate Christ. Because in Mahayana Buddhism, we understand that along the Bodhisattvas, or what we call the Pratyeka Buddhas or Shavakas. Bodhisattvas and Pratyeka Buddhas are initiates, meaning that they have worked in teachings of alchemy, teachings of spiritual development, work with the force we call Kundalini, the fire of the Holy Spirit, raising that fire from the Cossacks to the pineal gland and into the heart within successive dimensions which relate with the lower five spheres of the tree of life. And when reaching the sphere of Tifereth, one attains mastery as a beginner. It is highly significant that when you imagine a person transposed upon this Hebraic glyph, Tifereth aligns and relates with the heart. It's the human soul, the human consciousness, developed into a master. Yet remember that even upon reaching those heights known as nirvana, very blissful states, not all of them become bodhisattvas. There are really two paths that open up when you reach those heights of what's called mastery. The Pratyeka Buddhas follow the spiral path, but the bodhisattvas follow something very different and very radical called the direct path. Both paths eventually lead to the original source of the divine what we call the Absolute. Some know it as Parabrahma, Allah. We use the term Christ as the type of impersonal force and intelligence within creation. But really is that uncreated source, which both the spiral and the direct paths lead to, but in very different ways, with very different results. This is really the very heart doctrine, because Tifereth, the human soul, relates with the heart. And if we are fortunate enough to reach those stages of development someday, it's a very major decision to choose between the spiral path of the Pradika Buddhas and the direct path of the Bodhisattvas who incarnate Christ. This is something very significant. You can read about it in The Three Mountains by Samael and Vayor. But really, the spiral path is a very long trajectory which takes many cosmic days, known as Mahamanvantaras, periods of activity in which entire universes are born and pass away with cosmic nights or Mahapralayas. It takes many cosmic days on the spiral path, very slow, because those individuals choose not to renounce the happiness in Nirvana. And if you experience Nirvana, you can see why, because it is blissful. Some people wonder if a person took the spiral path, if they would return. It depends upon their karma. Because we know that nirvana is governed by laws. The tree of life, whether in the very heights or the bottom of this physical world, is governed by karmic laws. Nirvana is governed by periods of activity and repose. When nirvana enters into activity, the nirvanis or initiates of that realm will have to physically incarnate because of cause and effect, because of past karma that they owe. We know, given through the writings of Samael and Vyor, that nirvana is in a period of activity 
And many Pratika Buddhas have physical bodies. The problem in general is that it's very easy to fall again. You reach those heights, and then you come back to the physical world and are tempted to make mistakes again. So they lose the doctrine, the heart, and their level, right? But a Bodhisattva is someone who renounces everything, is a being that is very revolutionary, which is considered very scandalous. It comes into my mind the Prophet Muhammad, very radical. Jesus, very radical. Buddha, very radical. They created many enemies because they go against everything that is wrong. And unfortunately, pretty much everything about this planet is wrong. With the direct path, it's very straight. It's short, but it's very difficult. Because the initiate has to pay his karma entirely in one life. That is really the essence of the heart doctrine. For one thing, we have ethics and renunciation. This is the foundation in the beginning. But with bodhicitta, with Christ's mind, with altruism and inspiration to help others, we take on everything. All the suffering of this planet on our shoulders, the cross of Jesus in order to help humanity to transform it. This is really the beauty of the great initiates. When I think that I have problems and difficulties, I look at the life of Jesus and see how much he was despised and hated by everybody. But he just returned that type of negativity with love, sincere gratitude for those people. Bodhicitta is really that. Bodhicitta is composed of two principles. One, comprehension or realization of the absolute. And two, conscious love and compassion for all sentient beings. Emptiness, pranya in Buddhism, is the very primordial root nature of existence. It's a type of emptiness or space, which if you recall from the book of Genesis, and the world was formless and void, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. It's what we call the abstract absolute space. It is the nothingness or space, which does not indicate nihilism like many people think when they study Buddhism and react with horror. It is emptiness, but the genuine type of existence beyond our concepts. That is the heart doctrine, the realization of that even if it's just in a minor samadhi, which in truth is not that minor. If you find yourself entering the illuminating void, that is really where we can say that bodhicitta is strengthened. That is, remember that bodhicitta is comprehension of karma, cause and effect, intercausal relations in relation with ethics. It is the understanding of the impermanence of phenomena coupled with conscious love. Many schools of Buddhism, and I've heard even many Gnostic instructors saying, well, it's either one or the other. But it's not. It's both. If you really have love for a person, conscious love, it's because you understand that they are suffering from karma, that they are afflicted by causes and conditions. When you see that this is impermanent, that nothing is really stable in life, that everything is inherently empty of an intrinsic existence, 
It depends upon specific causes. We do not fall into nihilism, which is due to the fact that we understand we have existence and comprehend the nature of cause and effect. When we see how impermanent psychological states are, we can truly forgive a person very easily, such as if he or she is angry at us for one moment and nice to us in the next. There's really nothing to get angry about. Usually we think, oh, he's angry at me, or she's angry at me, or he's being nice to me, she's being nice to me. However, none of that is permanent. None of that is. It's really on the basis of the impermanence of nature that we can develop real understanding and compassion, the heart doctrine, to develop tifereth and bodhicitta. In the beginning of our spiritual practices, we always try to develop ethics and change ourselves in a certain way through renunciation. But what we want also is to develop bodhicitta, that altruistic love for other beings through comprehension of emptiness, karma, and impermanence, which is the essence of the heart, the heart doctrine. It is real wisdom. Understanding that there is karma, that things are interdependent, that nothing is separated or isolated, and that we affect others. We develop genuine concern for others to the point that we don't even exist in an egotistical sense, but are always giving out as much as we can to the best of our ability. That is really what bodhicitta is. However, this is really not the end. There is the Vajrayana or Tantrayana path, which is the most revolutionary and difficult to understand. As I said, Vajra can mean diamond or lightning. And a Vajra is a symbol of power utilized within ceremonies of Buddhism, Hinduism, and Jainism the meaning of which will be clarified shortly. The real essence or the spirit of a doctrine, the heights of spirituality, is the understanding of pranya or emptiness. And it is precisely through the vajra that we can come to know the truth. First, we need to develop ourselves and our practice through ethics, renunciation, and comprehension of karma, followed with the generation and strengthening of bodhicitta, wherein we work to make changes within ourselves and ascend higher. Despite the beauty of this level of teaching, the real heights of the Vajrayana path is really the experience of the Absolute in meditation, where we fall asleep and our soul goes to the void, the space, which is so amazingly symbolized in the beginning of one of Wagner's operas, Das Rheingold from the Ring des Nibelungen, or the Ring of the Nibelungen, which is literally about 138 bars of music in the same key, which is symbolizing that ocean, the space that keeps on going and going and going. It is very overwhelming. That is really the nature of the emptiness, the void. Understand that this is not something we will immediately come to understand, since first we learn through the intellect through concepts, to experience it as a heart doctrine is another thing. But that's why we study first. So that when we find ourselves in a samadhi, having that experience, we will have more courage because we will understand what's going on. So it won't be as terrifying. Although to the ego, it is very terrifying. Because every sense of self 
security that we have in the egotistical self really becomes annihilated before that. To become one and merge with that universal soul, universal compassion, without shackles or limitations, truly beyond this universe of relativity and karma, cause and effect. The wisdom of prana or emptiness has been known by different names. And so while I'm teaching this in the Buddhist flavor, you can see how this applies to all religions irregardless. In the Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism, this philosophy of emptiness is known as Dzogchen, founded by Padmasambhava, who was an Indian master of the 8th century. Consider the second Buddha in comparison to Gautama Shakyamuni, due to his knowledge and level of attainment. We also have Mahamudra, which is practiced by the other three schools of Tibetan Buddhism, Guluk, Shakya, and Kagyu. Really, these two philosophies are synonymous. They really have the same meaning. Dzogchen translates into great perfection. And Mahamudra means truth seal. This is going to be very significant in relation with other traditions besides Buddhism. I will read for you what Samael and Vayar wrote in the Zodiacal Course. The doctrine of the heart is called the seal of the truth, or the truth seal. In Islam, we know that the Prophet Muhammad is known as the seal of the prophets. And what does a prophet teach? He teaches the truth. He is the seal of the truth. That is Mahamudra, even given as the identity of a great initiate. For example, if you're familiar with Al-Maraj, which is the ascent of the prophet into the superior world or seven heavens, he rides on a mystical animal called Al-Burak. The word B-R-Q means lightning. Lightning is a Vajra. Vajra relates with Dzogchen, Mahamudra, the truth seal, the seal of the prophets. So we see that Muhammad is a master of Tantra, or Vajrayana. That's how he ascended to the superior worlds. Padmasambhava said this about Dzogchen. It is the secret, unexcelled cycle of the supreme vehicle of Tantra, the true essence of the definitive meaning, the short path for attaining Buddhahood in one life. This is the straight path, the direct path of the Bodhisattva. And as it says in the very opening of Al-Quran, in Surat Al-Fatiha, in the name of Allah, the entirely merciful, the especially merciful, all praise is due to Allah, Lord of the worlds, the entirely merciful, the especially merciful, sovereign of the day of recompense. It is you we worship and you we ask for help. Guide us to the straight path the path of those upon whom you have bestowed favor, not of those who have evoked your anger or of those who are astray. So we really find the essence of alchemy in the Vajrayana path, the very heights in all religions. It's very interesting that Dzogchen is the great perfection or that Mahamudra is the truth seal. Muhammad was the seal of the truth, seal of the prophets. And if you know Kabbalah, the sphere of Tifereth, relating with the heart, begins and ends with the Hebrew letter Tav. The letter Tav is literally the seal. It means covenant. And really this is the seal of covenant of the heart about developing bodhicitta. Now bodhicitta in Tantra has more connotations. It is synonymous with sexual energy, which is the very power of the Holy Spirit in the body, the psyche. Bodhicitta can be represented by the masons as the cubic stone, 
the stone that has to be chiseled. This relates with the stone that the builders rejected and is really the foundation stone of the temple. In relation with Muhammad, he was meditating in the mosque of Mecca, al-Mashid al-Haram, near the cubic stone. And it's from that stone of Bodhicitta, the Vajra, the lightning bolt, the fire of Kundalini, which rises from the spinal column to the heavens, took him all the way to the very heights. And it's described in Al-Hadith, which is the Muslim oral tradition, that he was before Allah, and that it's impossible to give attributes to that. Really, the scriptures are saying Allah is emptiness, the space, the primordial root nature of our consciousness, which is pure happiness and divine nature without form. Although we have not mentioned this earlier, there is a powerful scripture by the name of the Heart Sutra, or Pranya Paramita Sutra, which elaborates on the nature of the emptiness and ultimate wisdom of the awakened consciousness. To discuss the implications of this work would take many lectures, but here we are referencing it for further study. Really, the emptiness or void is the spirit of a doctrine. That is really the heart doctrine. This is why we say in the Shravakayana level, we don't fully grasp this, because it really takes a lot of heart in order to renounce our egotism, to develop spiritually, to really develop ethics. The problem is that many exoteric traditions do not have the heart doctrine. There really is no heart doctrine there. It's just theories, many discussions and polemics, arguments over terms. All of that has to do with the loss of the heart in many people, where there isn't even that genuine longing to change, that genuine longing for that seed, Pinocchio, to develop into a true human being. The Master Jesus explains it in this way in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 19 to 23. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The Christian Gospels relates with a much more ancient scripture, the voice of the silence as we've been discussing. The seeds of wisdom cannot sprout and grow in airless space. To live and reap experience, the mind needs breadth and depth and points to draw towards the diamond soul. Diamond soul refers to Vajra, or Vajrasattva, or Vajrayana. So really the seed can become that if we develop it progressively through the different stages of practice. The voice of the silence continues. Great sifter is the name of the heart doctrine, O disciple. The wheel of the good law moves swiftly on. It grinds by night and day. The worthless husks it dries from out the golden grain, the refuse from the flower. 
The hand of karma guides the wheel. The revolutions mark the beatings of the karmic heart. True knowledge is the flower. False learning is the husk. If thou wouldst eat the bread of wisdom, pranya, emptiness, thy flower thou hast to knead with Amrita's clear waters, relating with alchemy the science of transmutation. But if thou nettest husks with Maya's dew, thou canst create but food for the black doves of death, the birds of decay, birth, and sorrow. While this is just an explanation of the structures of religious practice, these are the degrees and stages by which the heart develops. These are levels of development, levels of practice. Generally, when we work in meditation, the foundation is concentration. We learn to control the mind so we can concentrate in order to really meditate. In relation with practice, we see that these three schools are synthesized again. Samael and Vior categorize this very simply and beautifully in one of his books of astrology, specifically the chapter on Leo. Concentration, meditation, samadhi. This is a much more simplified didactic of some of the more Hindu or Raja Yoga models. So we learn to concentrate. When we learn how to concentrate our mind on one thing, really the heart will open up to the experience of the divine. Meditation is really a state in which you receive new information. Whereas a lake on a mountaintop, you reflect the starry heavens of the being. And when you have enough stillness and concentration of mind, where your mind is focused, your heart opens up spontaneously, then prana, the spirit, wisdom, will enter into you in a moment of comprehension. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to find yourself flying out of your body. That can happen. And if you practice diligently, it will happen. Those types of experiences will unfold. Because naturally, if you're setting forth the causes and conditions for Dharma, fruit will naturally grow as a result of that. So the heart doctrine is hidden within the body, the soul, and the spirit. But more so in the spirit. We say that the body is exoteric, the soul is mesoteric, and the spirit is esoteric. Coming from the Greek esoterikos, Mesotericos and esotericos, and really an initiate, a mysticos, who closes the eyes to the exterior senses, awakens the heart, and experiences those things for him or herself. Do you have questions? Yeah. You touched more in the beginning on the nature of belief and how we should have preference toward experience rather than theories. If I remember right from what I've read, I guess belief, such as when the Bible tells you to believe, it's not just telling you to accept theory. It's when traced back to the Latin root, it has a context that people are not even aware of in the present day, and it's been ruined and gutted out by the Catholic Church. The word believe comes from be and leave or love, which is where we get the word libido. As I mentioned in tantric practice, Bodhicitta is synonymous with sexual energy, how we use that force. The first commandment of Moses, as was given by Jesus of Nazareth, explains this. Someone asked him, what is the highest commandment that exists? From the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This relates 
with the three brains of Gnostic esoteric psychology. The heart, the mind, and the soul, or waters of sex. This is what it means to be a believer. One who knows how to be through the power of love. The science of alchemy. Alchemy, as we have studied in a previous lecture, is Allah Kimia, to fuse with God, to unite with that. A real believer is someone who knows this type of alchemical science, and you find this in the Quran too. This really was the original intention in the word belief. Many people, however, would like to think that the way we're expressing it is in the literal sense, to just think that a concept is true with one's mind. But it's much more deeper than that. That would only be using one of the three brains. But then the real meaning of belief is to have action or performing religion within all three brains. Yes. It is not just an intellectual concept. It's not just a feeling in the heart or sensations. It has to do with our actions. Like someone says they believe in the cross. What does that really mean? Well, the cross is alchemical because the vertical beam is the phallus and the horizontal beam is the uterus. Together they form the symbol of the Holy Spirit, which is Father, Masculine, Yah, and Mother, Feminine, Eve, Chava. Even the symbol of Islam is alchemical too. Because you have the crescent moon and the star of Venus. The moon relates with Yasab, the sexual energy or bodhicitta. The star of Venus is the Divine Mother. So this indicates how you work with that energy through the power of love, to be a believer. This is what a believer is in the true sense of the word. When I'm talking about what people term belief, it's in the completely exoteric sense. You made a very interesting point about the symbol of Islam with the star and the moon. I tended to think that that's a lot like the cross too, because you said that there are masculine and feminine components isn't that what you're seeing with the moon? The star and the moon would be like the sun, masculine, and the moon would be feminine. The Divine Mother, the Virgin Mary, dressed in a blue mantle in the Assumption, standing over the moon, has to convert it into a sun, a star. And that is really what the symbol of Islam signifies. It gets even more alchemical in the relation with yoga, because generally you find crosses on the tops of churches and the symbol of the crescent moon and the star on the top of the mosques. Really the body is a temple. In the very top is the chakra Sahasrara, which is the very highest chakra in relation with omniscience, samadhi, mahasamadhi, experiences with the most elevated aspects of the tree of life. So we see that the cross has to be carried from the bottom of the spinal column and raised it to the very heights. When we see the cross at the very height, it's referring to alchemy. How we raise that energy to the very top of the pineal gland. In the mosque too, we find the same thing. The moon is related with the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel, or Jibril in the Quran, is often referred to by Muslims as the Holy Spirit. So it's the same thing. The Holy Spirit is really found by raising the moon and our sexual glands to the brain. Transforming it into a sun. From a feminine lunar force to a solar masculine force, to the very heights of realization. This is what a church or mosque indicates in their architecture. The church is the body itself? 
It also relates with the tree of life. Because the cross has four points. Related with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the very root of existence. God. Ein Sof. Otherwise known as the star of Bethlehem. The root of our being. The Holy Spirit in relation with Gabriel is the same thing. The very heights of realization that we find in the pineal gland. And the cross relates with the four elements. Earth, the physical body. Water, sexuality. Fire, the heart. And air, mind. And this also relates with the Hebrew letters. Aleph, air. Shin, fire. Mem, water. These conditions constitute the three mother letters of Kabbalah. With Hey, the earth, we can spell Hashem, literally translating as the name, and is used as a term of respect in the place of Yod Chava, the sacred name of God. Such as in the saying, Baruch Hashem Adonai, blessed be the name of the Lord. We see that just as our inner being is a tetragrammaton, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Ein Sof, even our physical body is a tetragram in relation with alchemy and the cross. So in synthesis, a believer uses the cross of their body in order to practice transmutation or alchemy to fuse oneself with God. Am I remembering this right? The I, the A, and the O represent the superior elements? This is the Latin version of the same thing. E-A-O among the Gnostics is considered one of the most powerful mantras of the Lord. I, Ignis, fire, shin. A, aqua, water, mem. O, origo, air, aleph. We demonstrate that we are true believers by how we use our sexual force for God, our bodhicitta which is the root of all creation as symbolized in the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, because we have a physical body, the earth, and the three other elements which relate with God. So really we are a miniature cosmos, a human being that needs to be standing upright before God. That is what a believer is. To use all these three letters, the fire, heart, the air, mind, and the water, sex. Usually most people are just using their air, thinking, well, I think God is real, when they don't really know. They do not follow the heart doctrine at all, because they are really having no experiences. Spiritual creation is a combination of the three, the four elements. You're talking in relation with the cross, those three, if I remember correctly, in relation with those three top points of the cross itself... And then the one element that is not talked about, which is the bottom point, so that there is earth, air, fire, and water. Yes. The earth can relate with the bottom point, since that is where one is grounded. That is if the cross is stable. However, we also talk about the cross in motion, the swastika, which is a very sacred symbol amongst many religions, but was unfortunately abused in misappropriated by a mistaken group of people who exclusively consider themselves Aryan. We have to remember that the zodiacal sign of Aries relates with fire and that all of humanity is governed by that force, that sign of the god of Aries, Samael, who is working intensely through our current zodiac, Aquarius. When we see that the swastika is in motion, like in 
Tibetan Buddhism or Hinduism, it's really all the elements in motion. They're mixing. All the forces of the swastika mingle together, such as with the chakras. When all the chakras are activated, it's not like one activates over the other. They work harmoniously in unison. So if you have experiences of clairvoyance or clairaudience, usually it's in combination with many things. These psychic phenomena don't tend to remain so isolated. Just like any normal experience, you have thought, feeling, and sensation. They usually happen all mixed together. This makes it hard to isolate specific phenomena, whether in the external or our internal worlds, our psychology. This is what makes access to the heart doctrine so difficult, because we tend to be very confused in our three brains and how they function. I've read some articles on the swastika where they say it's not even supposed to be pointed in a particular direction, since one represents the wheel of life and the other the wheel of death. There's that connotation. One of the directions represents the actualization of the Maha Manvantara, which means the creation of the tree of life. The expansion of existence out of the absolute, that primordial root nature of consciousness into manifestation, into the creation that we have. Then we have the other direction, the Mahapralaya, the cosmic night, where the universe gets absorbed back into the absolute, symbolized by the days and nights of Brahma. When Brahma exhales, we have creation. When he inhales, all of that returns to the source. So we always have periods of activity and repose, intimately related with the breath of God. And it is the wind, the spirit, Aleph, that rotates the swastika in motion. As I mentioned, nirvana has periods of activity and repose. What we're talking about now is much greater, much grander on a cosmic scale, represented in the swastika or Gnostic cross. Originally, the counterclockwise swastika used to represent how manifestation or creation, the tree of life, unfolded from the absolute, the emptiness, the prana. However, since we've entered into Malkut, the physical world, that swastika needs to return back to the divine origin, the emptiness. This is symbolized by the clockwise swastika, which we find depicted in Buddhist art. The swastika should rotate now to the right, clockwise, towards the absolute. For the left, counterclockwise indicates a fall into even more dense states of matter and energy. We are in Malkut, as I said, and we do not need to descend further into the infernal worlds, which is signified by the counterclockwise Nazi swastika, a symbol of degeneration and black magic. The essence of a true believer, a follower of the heart doctrine, bodhicitta, is the work with the cross. They use everything they have, but most importantly the heart, following the superior emotional center. The path of the heart, as Samayanvir indicated, is Mahamudra, the realization of emptiness, tantrayana, vajrayana, to love thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, everything. Those are really the four elements relating with the psyche, the Hebrew letters, relating with the cross or vajrayana, 
the heart doctrine. Is there a succession of the chakras, such as a list to work on? It is particular to you. This is why some island VR gave so many different practices. Because our needs are different. I might need to work more with my heart. Maybe you need to develop more clairvoyance. It depends on you. You need to meditate and really analyze. What do I want to know? And what do I really need to know? And sometimes, just meditating and not even intending it, you can have certain experiences in which the heart opens up. Whereby a clairaudience, psychic sounds appear in your psyche. You hear sounds in the astral plane. Or clairvoyance emerges where you start seeing images. So while you're physically meditating, you gain access to the internal worlds. This can spark your interest, such as, since I experienced that, I need to develop that more. So there's no determined checklist, such as starting first with the Muladhara Chakra, and moving up to Svaristana, Manipura, Anahata, etc. Although that can be effective. I've heard in particular with Gloria Publishing that they tend to emphasize the heart because that's probably the most default and the most needed. That also relates with the emotional brain and the heart doctrine. To really develop bodhicitta, real love for other human beings, genuine compassion originating from comprehension of emptiness of phenomena. We see that human beings are predominantly intellectual, especially in the West. Really, our heads are libraries. You go to university and see many different instructors and that their hearts are dead. If you look more intimately through clairvoyance, you see that they are just intellectual. Really, they just regurgitate information. I like what one German philosopher said, Friedrich Nietzsche, that university professors are like clocks. Just make sure you wind them correctly so that they'll tell you the time. They'll repeat facts like this and that being that they are just intellectual. People tend to be way too intellectual. That is why we teach the heart doctrine to experience because it entails a superior emotional quality. While I refer to the three brains, intellect, emotions, motor, instinctual, sexual impulses, we also relate to superior centers relating with the psyche, which are a direct connection with the divine. We have a superior intellectual center, which receives concepts and abstract principles from God. This is the divine noose of Plato and the Republic the objective spiritual reasoning of the philosopher kings, real human beings in the true sense of the word. Then you have the superior emotional center, which becomes activated by listening to the great classical compositions of the masters of music, such as Beethoven. Profound and Kabbalistic works given through music and art. That's really food for the heart. Since in the works, such as the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven, we experience the heart doctrine, the emptiness of prana, the logos or word of Christ, within the magnanimous choral movement, along with the Vajrayana path that leads out of suffering. It's very explicit. But to understand it, you need to experience it internally. 
in order to recognize the message physically. Since Beethoven was an initiate, who wrote for other initiates of the heart doctrine? The chorus teaches about bodhicitta, the mysteries of the heart, and represent the Elohim, the gods singing in unison. Many voices, but one universal harmony, pranya, ever-flowing, the swastika in motion, the power of God in movement, the emptiness, the real wisdom or happiness of the Lord. Beethoven's greatness is unveiled to the spiritual sight when we see that he wrote from having experienced many Samaha Samadhis. It's really unbelievable how anyone could convey such experiences through music, which is a living scripture. In relation with the heart, yes, listening to music like that develops our emotional center through conscious superior sentiment, not to be confused with sentimentality like Hallmark cards. Therefore, we always emphasize the heart, since it is the heart that is always going to lead us to liberation. Represented by Jiminy Cricket, giving us, represented by Pinocchio, inquietudes, pushing us to study, pushing us to practice, pushing us to want to change. He's really the heart, the consciousness or buddhata, the cricket who is like a little verb. A little E-A-O, we can say. E-A-O is Christ. For in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is a small voice. A little representation of that principle that guides us in our actions and tells us what to do. We must always follow Him with our heart. If we struggle with that, there are many practices we can use. Many prayers such as the Pater Noster, which is very powerful and beautiful. The Bodhisattva Francis of Assisi gave another tremendous prayer to develop the heart, the heart doctrine within. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. This is the Bodhisattva path. Even Mother Teresa had some beautiful teachings too. I don't know of her development, but she really embodied in a profound way the principles of sacrifice without self-consideration. The heart comes first. It is really the instrument that will take you to the very heights. As Muhammad said in Al-Harit, There is an organ in the body that, if it is righteous, ensures that the whole system will be righteous. And if it is corrupt, the whole body will become corrupt. This organ is the heart. And he also said, There is the polish for everything that takes away rust, and the polish for the heart is remembrance of Allah. This is self-remembrance. Remembrance of our inner God. When the heart is polished like a mirror, 
It can reflect God within in every action. Then we will become a better instrument for the Lord to act in our life, guiding us. You were talking about purity with concentration, where your concentration practice can be put askew if we're not keeping purity of mind and heart. This was profound for me because I've been studying for a long time, but have never heard of this or overlooked it or has said it like that. You can be sitting there meditating, concentrating, and can be less distracted if you actually kept more purity in your thoughts, speech, and all that. So really, ethics is the catalyst for your concentration, whereby concentration is the root catalyst for what becomes meditation, where you can actually concentrate very well. Then meditation is a potential catalyst for samadhi and things of that sort. The foundation is concentration, ethics, renunciation without concentration we can't meditate and this is the failure of many practitioners in schools they try to meditate for 20 years but have no experiences because they do not maintain purity in their mind heart and actions the sins of body speech and mind they're meditating but have an established concentration practice whereby they could focus completely basically what we want in meditation is to sit for however long and to not forget that we're meditating. This is described in the diagram of the nine stages of meditative concentration in Tibetan Buddhism or calm abiding the stages of serenity. We find this diagram throughout the Tibetan Buddhist monasteries. It has been used and taught by all the great Tibetan Buddhist masters. Therefore, this really emphasizes its importance. Here we see a monk chasing after a wild elephant. The elephant is the mind. In the beginning, it is chaotic, running all over the place, without control. But eventually, through his tools, a rope and a hook, representing mindfulness, restraint, concentration, he's able to calm it down until reaching the stage where the elephant is becoming more white instead of gray, indicating he is becoming more pure and docile. The monk finally reaches the point where the mind is subdued and then samadhi or mystical experience occurs. He's flying. These stages are not like plateaus or a checklist to fulfill one by one. These are principles and one can fluctuate greatly within the diagram. It depends on our effort. But generally when we meditate, we at least want to develop the degree of concentration where we don't forget that we're meditating. Which are the middle stages of concentration, the fourth or fifth stages? This is a very profound diagram for comprehending and developing concentration. It is a guide or map for our practice in developing the heart doctrine within. I thank you for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential.
May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.